Welcome back. Today's guest is the return. The the thrice great Greg Schmaus has made his way back to the podcast. Uh, Greg had hit me up earlier this year wanting to visit uh, something that he had been working with me off podcast on uh, Caroline Mace's work, Spinning the Archetype Wheel, which I was introduced to a little over a year ago, spent this last year working on it, and um, I've really been fascinated by it. And then Greg said, look, let's have a call. And uh, we spent damn near two hours. I recorded it just for myself. I was like, that could have been the podcast. It was that good. Um, I'm happy it wasn't because quite a bit of it is is really personal and we still get quite personal. It's uh, it's like looking at under the interior of the way my psyche works. So um, yeah, I don't know if that makes me some type of psyche voyeur or <laughs> whatever the fuck you'd call that. Um, but yeah, this is a, in many ways, you'll get to know me a hell of a lot better by listening to this podcast. But really what it's about is to teach us some of the, the key concepts around each house. Uh, Caroline Mace worked with the 12 houses of the Zodiac to determine how those function as a way we interface with spirit, source, consciousness, the psyche, all that good stuff. And um, yeah, we break down, you know, what are the four survival archetypes? I know you've heard me talk about that on the podcast before. And then really, you know, how you select the other eight that are going to fit into those houses and then how you shuffle and allow them to place themselves into each house. And then from there, how you continue to work with that throughout the year. So want, this is very much a, a join me for the ride, learn a bit, and then try it for yourself podcast. This is why I wanted to wait till the end of the year to do it. It is a super cool thing to do at the end of the year. I mean, we've got so much we, we want to call in and create in 2023. And anytime we're at the end of the year, it's time to reflect, time to see what we want to do differently next year, all that stuff. You've got New Year's resolutions and shit. Some of it sticks, some of it doesn't. Uh, and there's no judgment there. The point is, this is an excellent time to really dive deep into the self. You know, uh, the winter time, the the winter season is one of reflection. It's one of going within, it's staying indoors. It's keeping warm. It's doing less outside. It's being more internal. And um, with that, it's the perfect time to dive deep into your own psyche, into your own consciousness. Really see like, what is it? What? How do I show up in the world? What is my highest potential? How do I relate to other people in one-on-one -on -one relationships? How do I relate people in work and in office settings? All this stuff is in there. Uh, Mace, M-Y-S-S -S is how it's spelled. Mice could be the other pronunciation. Um, is a beast. We'll link to her book in the show notes. Um, she's got an audible, which is an excellent lecture. If you don't like reading, um, you can listen to her lecture. It doesn't have the same details as her book does. Um, she has several books, but this one in particular on archetypes is one that would be required reading, really, to take a deep dive. Um, you can also get her archetype cards, uh, which are quite useful for doing this um, on Amazon. We'll link to that in the show notes as well. And you can just grab a deck and just really sit with each of the archetypes that stand out to you. And these aren't things that you choose where you're like, oh man, yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm a, I'm a such and such. You know, like I, <laughs> you don't pick one that you, because you like it, you pick one because it chose you pick one because it's been a part of your life, your entire life. And you may not have recognized that when you were five or six years old, but at a certain point you were like, oh yeah, I've had that energy. I've had that, the qualities of this archetype with me from the jump. And as I look in the rearview mirror, I can see it with me at every stage. Um, so again, I mean, there's going to be some that are just like, uh, <laughs> you don't pick where they go either. So it's really fucking interesting 
as we dive into my wheel to see how all this fits. Greg takes it a step further, as Caroline Mace does, and, and really shows how um, when these things oppose each other on the opposite side of the wheel, they're counterbalancing. And how that shows up on my chart is pretty remarkable. It's fascinating. And, and again, like you could take my word for it, but uh, as we dive into this podcast, which is a big one, um, you'll see just how this stuff starts to play out. And it's, I mean, I laugh. It's like the, the, the fucking divination tools are legit. And this is one of those. Um, another great divination tool is the tarot. And knowing exactly what to do with that is very important. Otherwise, you're just haphazardly going about saying, oh, I drew this. This is what it means. I mean, really understanding that can help you draw so much more from it. And, uh, you know, my brother, Paul Check, one of my guides and mentors, had recently done a tarot workshop. He will be putting that up online, and I'll be taking it online since I missed it. Uh, and we'll link to that in the show notes as well as soon as it's up. It might have to be re- done retroactively afterwards, Jose. But enough about that. Greg is phenomenal. Uh, he, he, you know, third time on the podcast. He is a wealth of knowledge, a Czech understudy, somebody who has done uh, ample amount of work in his practices. And I loved having him on the podcast. We'll definitely have him back. Number of ways you guys can support this podcast. First and foremost, share it with somebody you think will listen. If you're like, dude, this is right up your alley, check it out. Uh, just send them a link. You can send them a link on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify. Typically, the bigger ones are a little bit easier. If they know they have an iPhone, send them the iTunes link. If you know they don't, send them the Spotify link if they've got Spotify. Those kind of things uh, just make it easy for somebody to just click and play. Leave us a five-star rating. Organify through the end of this year. I think we got two more episodes where Organify... Um, We'll be doing this for, uh, at the end of December, we're going to pick one winner who has left us a five-star rating. Typically, it's going to be on iTunes, could be on Spotify, uh, and uh, just one or two ways the show's helped you out in life. And you'll receive my favorite product from Organifi. It's going to be the green, the red, or the gold. And I promise you, it's going to work and it's going to feel great. You will feel a difference. Also, support our sponsors. They make the show possible. And uh, last but not least, we're only talking about this till the end of the year here, or, or I guess halfway through, halfway through January. There we go. We'll be talking about this halfway through January. So a few more episodes. Uh, people ask me often, how do I work with you, Kyle Kingsbury? I want to work with you one-on-one. I want to do private coaching. Uh, I want in on the inner circle. And they've read stuff from my outdated website, or they've heard me talk about it before on podcasts. The most cost-effective way is to work with me in fit for service. You get me as a coach. Every week, you get to ask me questions. We do live Q&As once a week with me, Eric Godsey, and Caitlin Howe. And if you have specific questions that are specific to me, you just say that. There's nothing wrong with it. I have a question for Gal Kingsbury. Sometimes we get questions just for Eric Godsey on journaling or dream interpretation that I have no fucking business answering. And I don't, no one gets upset. We're like, yeah, that's, that's Godsey's wheelhouse. If you want to talk health and wellness, if you want to talk about getting in shape, if you want to talk about anything, relationships, any of these things, parenting, anything that's in my wheelhouse, and you were to question me, you're going to have that answered every single week for 52 weeks. In addition to that, you get a community, a giant community of like-minded people that are all here to do the similar work. They're all here to grow. They're all here to learn. They're all here to heal. And they're all here to make the best possible version of themselves so they can be fit to serve. We did an excellent episode on what next year's curriculum is. We're going back to the full year program. Uh, you pay one monthly fee a month. It's all there at fitforservice.com. But this episode we did a couple of weeks ago, we'll link to that in the show notes with Aubrey Marcus, Caitlin Howe, and Eric Godsey and myself. And it was fire. I mean, we really, really uh, spoke from the heart in that podcast and really spoke to what it is that we're trying to articulate and create in this coming year. And I can tell you right now, just based on experience alone, having done this for four years, next year will be our best year we've ever done by far. 
And it's not just uh, the curriculum. It's each and every one of us as individual coaches, where we're at, what we've accomplished, what we've learned in the last four years, the alchemy of that, that we bring forward as coaches into fit for service is ever present. And it's always the best version of ourselves that we bring. Who we're bringing in outside of that experts we bring in from guys like Mark Gaffney to Matthias Stefano to Charles Eisenstein to Zach Bush, you get the creme de la creme for speakers at these events. You get the creme de la creme for entertainers and musicians. Uh, we had Dirtwire and, and amazing people out. We've had Yaima and just incredible, incredible musicians play at these events. And um, in that, we have peak experiences. We create peak experiences. Jamie Wheel talks a lot about that. He's been a guest at a couple of our events, a guest speaker. And they're very important to have. You know, if you read Stealing Fire or Recapture the Rapture, super important to have that. And this is something that we bring to the table in a container that is safe and enjoyable for everyone. And it is uh, the year long program is by far the best way to create the most change in the shortest amount of time. So visit us at fitforservice.com. Check it out there. You can see what we've got in store for next year. And if it fits, it fits. If not, uh, and you've only got five days to spend, I would love to see you at Full Temple Reset. This is our third Full Temple Reset. It is a immersive, an immersive rather than uh, the large group setting is a small group setting. For, for this one in particular, we cap it at 40 people total. And in that, we're going to go through a full temple reset, meaning your body as a temple, your mind and psyche as a temple, and your spirit as a temple. How do we flush that and clear out everything, clean out, cleanse, detox, and then ramp back up with the best food, the best ideas, the best soul-nourishing meal that we can have together through sound healing, and then take that into this next year? And it's done at the end of January for a reason. Most people, if you're like myself, go a little hammer on the holidays. And jumping right into a fast right after that is not recommended. Um, but you can purchase this for yourself and know, hey, man, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go big. And then I at least have this thing at the end of January that's going to snap me back and allow me to have the best year of my life. Full Temple Reset, we'll link to that in the show notes as well, uh, January 25th through the 29th. And uh, we've got about 18 days left at the t- time of this recording to sign up for that. So do not waste time. Click on that in the show notes and apply now. And I really hope to see you guys there. We're doing, again, we got our fasting mimicking diet. We've got blood work through Ways to All, a 45-minute consult on all things medical with our medical professionals. We will have on-site nursing staff to make sure that if you're running low, if you're dehydrated, you can get IVs, you can get different things that you need. Sauna and ice bath daily. We'll be doing daily mobility uh, based on the tutelage of Kelly Sturette and Aaron Alexander and getting into our bodies and getting out on the land. And in addition to that, journaling practices, symbology through Jungian analysts with my dude, Eric Godsey. And then of course, at the end on our fifth day of fasting, we will drop in for a sound healing that is going to be absolutely spectacular. I hope to see you guys there. This is the easiest way for me to get to know you. I do not work with anybody one-on-one that I have not met before who has not been coached by me before. Every one of my private clients is somebody that I've met through Fit for Service, period. And it'll stay that way. Uh, so this is the intro. If you want it in, Get to Full Temple Reset or get to, get to Fit for Service next year, and we can continue to work with each other. Today's broadcast is brought to you by my friends at Newtopia. And these guys are the kings of long new URLs, so www.newtopia.com slash kingsboogenius is the one click. We'll have that in the show notes, so don't try to write it down. Do you struggle with brain fog or have difficulty focusing? Do you have trouble recalling names, dates, or where you left things? If so... I've got some good news for you. Newtopia, powered by Bioptimizers, has created a brand new one-of-a-kind product called Collagenius. 
It combines collagen, cocoa, cacao with four different kinds of mushrooms, lion's mane, reishi, cordyceps, chaga. This cutting-edge blend fights brain fog, helps repair your brain, improves your ability to focus, and boosts something called BDNF, which supports improved learning and memory power. After each serving of Collagenius, you'll feel calm, alert, and energized. Your ability to memorize and recall information will improve, and you'll get a hefty dose of antioxidants for immune support. Collagenius is delicious. It's sweetened with stevia and tastes like a rich chocolate elixir. Simply mix it with water or milk or hot coffee and enjoy. Or for a more potent blend, you can mix it with the morning coffee and a little butter and make it your bulletproof style guy. That's what I do and I absolutely love it. But whatever you do, don't miss out on this brain-boosting power of this amazing new product. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to www.nootopia.com slash K-I-N-G-S-B-U-G-E-N-I-U-S and use Kingsboo10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. Again, www.nootopia.com slash Genius and use Kingsboo number 10 during checkout to save 10%, get free shipping. Next on this podcast, we are sponsored by Aura. Aura, thank you for sponsoring this podcast. Do you know what the fastest growing crime in America is? For years, this crime rate has been surging and affecting millions of Americans. I'm talking about identity theft, and it happens to one in 20 Americans. Yet despite this, those who have had their identity stolen are often shocked when it happens. Imagine trying to log into your email account one day, only to see that the password had changed hours ago. Then you start getting notifications of activity from your bank, credit cards, crypto accounts. That's when the feelings of panic, fear, anxiety, paranoia, disbelief, shock, anger, frustration, and guilt all set in. That's why I'm excited to partner with Aura, who is sponsoring this video. Aura is identity theft protection, fraud monitoring, a VPN, password management, and antivirus software all combined into one easy-to-use app. Aura monitors the dark web for your emails, passwords, social security numbers, and sends alerts fast right to your phone and email. When it comes to fraud, every second matters. Connect your credit and bank accounts to get notified of any changes up to four times faster than Aura's competitors. Their VPN allows you to stay anonymous online while keeping your browsing history and personal information safe and encrypted. And their antivirus software will block malware and viruses before they infect your devices. Protect you and your family from America's fastest growing crime. Try Aura for free for two weeks and see if any of you or your family's personal information has been compromised. This is awesome. You're going to visit Aura.com slash Kyle. That's H-T-T-P-S colon forward slash forward slash A-U-R-A dot C-O-M slash K-Y-L-E. Again, links are in the show notes. Check it out. Uh, absolutely phenomenal way just to check. You get it for free for two weeks. You throw in your gear, uh, all your info there, and you'll know if you've been compromised. When I first signed up with these guys, I found out immediately that I had two passwords compromised and I had to change them. And those passwords, like a dodo, I had been using in more than two places. So uh, very important. Aura has hooked it up. These guys are the best in the industry and it is very worthwhile checking them out. We are also brought to you today by Lucy.co. Lucy has been one of my longest sponsors. They are a phenomenal way to take nicotine into your body and switch your brain on. Listen, the government is banning vapes. Government is reducing the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. There has never been a better time to give Lucy a try. They come in great flavors, multiple strengths, and it's the only nicotine pouch with a capsule inside that keeps it fresh. Look, we're all adults here, and I know some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. Lucy is a modern oral nicotine company that makes nicotine gum, lozenges, and pouches for adults who are looking for the best, most responsible way to consume their nicotine. It's a new year. Why not start it out by switching to a new nicotine product that you can feel good about? 
I love using this product. It's amazing on flights, amazing in the gym. It's an excellent way to switch on my brain at night. One of my favorite practices is once I've put the kids to bed and I want to read, I toss in a, a pouch and I'll read and I'll get a little boost of energy in the brain and I'll actually store all that information that I'm trying to consume late at night. And then after 45 minute window, it's all gone. And then lights out, buddy. I'm asleep. I feel great the next day. And it's awesome. Check it out. That's lucy.co, lucy.co. And remember the code KKP at checkout for 20% off everything in the store. Last but not least, we're brought to you by my friends at curednutrition.com slash KKP. Rise is a nootropic formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist. It contains a blend of lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, rhodiola, ginseng, broad-spectrum CBD. I absolutely love this stuff. I initially started taking Rise by Cured Nutrition because I wanted to reduce my caffeine intake. I do this often, y'all. It's very important to come off of things and then go back on. Not only was I able to eliminate my midday coffee, but I also saw a massive increase in my ability to complete my daily tasks. In a world where there are so many things trying to steal my attention, I couldn't be more thankful for the way this supplement has kept me laser-focused on my goals I have set out to accomplish this year. Right now, Cured is extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can grab Rise for 20% off by visiting curednutrition.com slash KKP and using coupon code KKP at checkout. That is C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash KKP and coupon code KKP at checkout to save 20%. This is loaded with lion's mane, custom-formulated cordyceps, huperzia serrata, known as a very profound nootropic, CBD, ginseng, extends your mental clarity and performance. There's no caffeine, no jitters, and no crash. Check it all out, curednutrition.com slash KKP, and remember code KKP at checkout for 20% off. And without further ado, my brother, Greg Schmaus. Greg Schmaus, I think this is your, your third time on the podcast, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Yeah, man. R- round three, buddy. Lucky number three. Lucky number three. Triplets. The the the, tri- the holy trinity. Um, you brought this up to me as a potential for us to uh, podcast about, and it was actually phenomenal, but it required a bit of homework. So we spent about an hour and a half on the phone um, resurfacing some of this information. Really cool stuff. Um, you know, in my experience, diving into archetype work through Carl Jung, through my work with Paul Check. And eventually hearing about Caroline Mace, I, I am just fascinated by it. And I think it, it tells us, it's, it's a unique way to get the language of the universe and then see how, how our un, unique design has attracted certain forces, certain elements, and certain parts of ourselves that want to express and will do so whether we know it or not, right? And it's better to know it. Yeah. Like, like Paul says, the devil, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Um, and as Caroline points to, there's a light side and a shadow side to any particular archetype. It's not like any one of these is like, oh man, that's so cool. You got the such and such archetype. These, these all have pros and cons. And it's through awareness of the archetype itself and awareness of ourselves, know thyself, that it allows us to actually express in a positive way and really start to glean information from this. Um, we're going to link to Caroline Mace's work in the podcast show notes. That way, if people really want to deep dive into that, uh, they'll have a place to go. And then obviously we'll link to your stuff too, because you've been such a a pivotal help for me in unpacking this. And that's really what this podcast is going to be. You're going to give us the basis of her work on the wheel, 
spinning the wheel, what the archetypes are. And uh, I mean, well, not what the archetypes are because there's there's many, many, many hundreds, if not thousands. But um, we'll dive into my archetypes. We'll dive into the four survival archetypes, which all of us express in one way or another. And then we'll dive into the houses and how that correlates as we walk through through my wheel. Um, and maybe we should have this at the end where we give a how-to for people who, if they want to spin the wheel, or you can just chop that in whatever you want. Sure. So the, the archetypes are really the language of our psyche. The archetypes are the, the vehicles that we use to express ourselves in relationship. And the beauty of utilizing archetypes as a vehicle of self-exploration is the fact that they're not personal. Archetypes are not personal things, they're collective patterns. And when you look at yourself through the lens of collective patterns, it's easier to take a look at the parts of yourself that maybe you've shied away from looking at because you realize, hey, like I have a victim, but so does everybody else. I have a saboteur, but so does everybody else. I have a prostitute, so does everybody else. I just express it in my own unique way. So therefore, doing a lot of the inner work, even the shadow work, it's a little bit more of a user-friendly process because you know that, hey, everyone carries these seeds and these patterns. We're just expressing themselves in different forms and in individual form. And so it's, it's, very, um, it's very easy to see the light and the shadow side, and it makes it a lot easier for you to do some of this inner exploration when you realize, hey, Every one of these archetypes, even the ones that most people consider to be negative, it served me well in some shape or form and continues to serve me well. That's why we have these contracts with these archetypes, like the victim, for example. Most people look at victimhood as a negative thing. But there's, a been, there's been a time in all of our lives in which we have been victimized. Maybe we've been abused. Maybe we've been neglected. Uh, maybe we've been um, judged or attacked or some form of victimization. So the victim helps us look out for any situation in life that that possibility or that potential might, you know, create itself again. You know, there's a light side of self-sabotage. There's a light side of the prostitute. There's a time to negotiate. So I think it's, it's really helpful in seeing that there's you know, two sides to every coin and there's not one archetype that exists that's only light or only shadow. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to express it. And I've, I've spent a decent amount on this podcast unpacking you know, the positive uses of the prostitute, right? And sure. Paul, Paul has really taken a deep dive with me on this. And the, the example that I'll give people and I won't go too far into it because we've got so much to uncover here with my wheel and then helping others to, to uncover. But if you're working a job you don't like, but it's as a means to an end, right? And I worked in a strip club for many years as a bouncer, bartender, and manager all through my fight career. I saw girls that went from dancing to bartending because they didn't want to dance anymore. They went from bartending, they saved that money, and they put themselves through nursing school and became registered RNs. You're like, that's, that, I've watched that multiple times and I thought it was really cool. And not all of them became RNs. It'd be a pretty freaking hot nurse and if, if I got hurt, but, but, um, there were those people. And then on the flip side of that coin, there were people who said, Hey, money's good. 
Um, I'm going to, I'm going to numb myself every night I come to work and pretend everything's fine. And I'm just going to do this. I'm going to ride it till the wheels fall off. And it eventually the, the looks run away and they end up getting behind the bar because they can't dance anymore. And then they bartend until the wheels fall off until they literally can't keep up with that anymore. And, um, you know, that's a sad, it's a sad picture to see that, but we all do the same thing, right? We, we have, we've seen this, uh, in, in, in people who have lived their lives and, and didn't fully live their lives. They worked some deadbeat job, dead end job. They didn't like for somebody else all on the promise of being happy later. And they prostituted themselves their whole life. And this doesn't just apply to work. It applies to much, much more than that, which we'll uncover later. But that's one of the easiest draws for me. If we think of prostitute, typically I think of, you know, taking in money for, for the exchange of some type of service that I don't necessarily want to do. And there's a right way to do that and not so right way to do that. So I think that's a, an easy example of that. Um, talk a bit about these first four survival archetypes um, that we all share, you know, and we don't need to get into sure. every form of the child, but give us a few examples of the child and then uh, we can yeah. start breaking down the houses and, and, and my wheel. So I like to share the four survival archetypes as a story. So we start with the child archetype because we come into this world as a child who is kind of helpless and powerless. You know, the child doesn't know how to take care of himself or herself. So the child is totally dependent on others for its own survival. So we start with the child archetype and that's really what the child archetype is. It's the the part of us that is dependent on others, that needs others to take care of itself. And we then start to have these experiences in which we feel unsafe, we feel threatened, we might feel a loss of connection, and we run into a situation in which we feel victimized. So now we give birth to the victim archetype because the victimization is a threat to our survival. Remember, these are called survival archetypes. So they're the four archetypes that are there to protect you from any potential threats to keep you safe, secure, and alive. So we start with the child. Then we're introduced to a situation in which we're victimized. We're introduced to a situation in which we feel as though we have to self-sabotage for our own survival, whether that means we're in an unhealthy environments. We're at a dinner table where there's tons of arguments and it doesn't feel safe for us to speak our truth. So we sabotage our own voice. That's what feels safe in that situation. So we sabotage for our own safety and survival. Then we notice situations in which we maybe feel like we have to compromise ourselves or we need to negotiate ourselves or we allow ourselves to be taken advantage of in some way because it gives us more of a guarantee of survival. So you see how these four survival archetypes are all there to protect the child who feels unsafe, insecure, totally dependent, and is just trying to survive. Now, these survival archetypes are there to help you survive but not thrive. So when you take a look at health and healing, these are the four archetypes that hold us back from healing. Why? Because they're the archetypes that we use to sabotage ourselves, victimize ourselves, prostitute ourselves, give our power away, which is usually where we give our energy away and eventually our health gets turned over. So these four archetypes are really our relationship with power 
they're kind of like the child's archetypal survival team of what we think we have to do to stay alive, to survive. And they're our relationship with our own power. For example, the child can gain a sense of power by playing the victim. Maybe the child's parents both work and have full-time jobs, but when the child is sick, one of the parents stays home and gives it more attention, more love, empathy, and compassion. So I experienced this in my own life where, you know, my father was a physician and he and I, we have a great relationship now, but when I was younger, we didn't have a deep like emotional connection. He was a great provider, but not much like intimate connection there. So whenever I was in pain or I was injured, my mom would take me to my dad's orthopedic office and I would get the best treatment from like his nurses, his um, partners and himself. So as a child, I developed this awareness of when I'm in pain, I get more love from dad. So you realize that me being in pain, me being sick, or me playing the victim or sabotaging my health in some way, I actually gain a sense of power and control because I can manipulate the situation to get my own emotional needs met. Or as a child, I wasn't very expressive. So I had kind of like some insecurities. I didn't really speak very much. I was very quiet, very introverted. So socially, I had some some challenges. And very often on the weekends, my mom would give me like a couple dollars to go to the movies and get some ice cream with some friends. And I noticed looking back, even by the age of like nine or 10, I would buy my friends movie tickets or I would buy their ice cream. And looking back, I was just like, what am I doing here? I was buying their loyalty. Right. So that's my introduction. By the time of I was nine or 10, the prostitute archetype, right, which is using money as a way of getting a guarantee, right? Some sort of manipulative pattern, compromising, negotiating, or taking advantage to ensure some sort of guaranteed outcome. So you see, these four survival archetypes are all how we ensure our sense of safety and security. They're all root chakra driven and to ensure our survival. And these are the core contracts that we signed from a very young age that we continue to carry with us and play out until, you know, like Paul Check says, the pain teacher, they create enough pain in our life that we realize that we have to maintain the light side, but begin to let go of the shadow side because they're not really serving us. They keep us safe, but they hold us back from being free. Yeah, we were at a time of great graduation. Yep. Well, let's break it. Let's talk a little bit about the wheel. Um, and for for those that haven't listened to Mesa or Caroline, her it's like M Y S S. I'm not sure, exactly sure how it's pronounced. I think it's Mace. Might be Miss. Um, she she did an audible on. Um, tell me the name of the main work again, Greg. Sacred contracts. Sacred, yeah, sacred contracts. And um, it's slightly different than the written. So the written is going to be different than that. We're going to break down uh, what she she basically what, what what she dreamt up this beautiful this beautiful concept of not just the archetypes themselves, but how they fit into your life specifically from a relationship standpoint. And as you'll mention, this is really the relationship of the self, the relationship with yourself. Um, walk us through 
the houses and how they pertain to to ourselves. And then we'll take a deep dive into exactly what right. I spun. When we spun this wheel um, about a year and a half ago, and uh, it, it, it's just mind-blowing going back over it with you, how accurate... The fifty, like yeah. you just can't make it up. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty nuts. But we'll talk also. Yeah. If you're interested in it, we'll save we'll save the how to guide for the end of this podcast. That way, people can spin their own wheel and start to work with the stuff just in time for New Year's. This is one thing that I wanted to offer everybody um, uh, at the end of the year. It is a great time to do this because as you hand into next year, month by month, you're going to sit with each one of these houses for twelve months in a year. And really feel into and investigate how these archetypes apply in the each unique house. So break down for us some um, these these houses and how they correlate. So the 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 twelve houses of the archetype wheel match up perfectly with the twelve houses in astrology, right? So obviously Caroline Mist did not develop the astrology aspect of it that's been around for a very long time, but using the 12 houses of astrology to explore through an archetypal lens is something that she developed. So the first house is the house of ego and personality. So the first house is essentially, this is who I am. So whatever archetype you have in the first house is really the archetype that is leading from the front. It's the archetype that you're most presenting to the world of this is who I am. And then we go into the second house, which relates to life values. So life values relates to this is what I have, my core values, my, my values in the sense of material possessions, what I claim ownership of, my finances, what I value in my life, but also how I value myself. So the second house relates to a lot of self-esteem and self-worth. So we go from house one, this is who I am, to house number two, which is this is what I have. And then we move to house number three, which is communication and sibling relationships. The reason sibling relationships are in the third house is because sibling relationships are where you learn communication, where you start to learn how to interact and how to perceive. The third house is how you perceive the world. So you go from who I am to what I have to how I express. That's house number three. House number four is home and family life. So this is home and family of origin. This is also your current home and family life. So we go who I am, what I have, how I express to this is where I'm from. This, these are my origins or my roots. And then we move into the fifth house, which is joy and creativity. The fifth house is kind of like the house of play and fun. This is our sexuality, our creativity, the things we love to do. The fifth house also carries our greatest gifts. So the fifth house is really, this is what I love to do. Then we move into the sixth house, which is work and health. Work and health are more the things we have to do. Right? We have to go to, well, we don't, we never have to do anything, but in this context, these are the things we have to do to keep the trains running on time. I have to go to work to pay the bills. I have to take care of my health to, to stay healthy and to continue to live and engage life fully. So we go from five, what I love to do, to six of like what I need to do. 
And then we go to the seventh house, and this is where we start to introduce ourselves to the other. The seventh house is um, this is who you are in relationship to me. Seventh house is one on one relationships. So now we're starting to really gain a sense of self in relationship to the other, and the other mirrors parts of us back to us. So what's important to remember is when you're exploring these archetypes, you're never exploring anything outside of you. A lot of times we look outside of us, but in reality, everything on the wheel, everything on the archetypes is an internal process, right? So even one-on-one relationships, you might be oriented towards the other, but it's really some part of you that you're in relationship with. So then we go from one-on-one relationships in the seventh house to other people's resources in the eighth house. And other people's resources, remember the eighth house, if you look on a wheel, is directly across from the second house. The second house is, remember, this is what I have. This is what I claim ownership of. This is what I have to offer. The eighth house across from it, other people's resources, what other people have to offer me, right? So this is other people's money, other people's time, other people's energy. This is also um, inheritance. So anything you're inheriting from others, that could be genetics, that could be some sort of um, something financial. So the eighth house is what other people have to offer me. And it's also what I want or need from others. The eighth house is very often where we meet our shadow. Because it's what you think you want or need from others, and you've created the illusion that you don't have that or can't offer that to yourself, right? So the eighth house, you're introduced to the shadow where you try and pull something out of another because you haven't cultivated that within yourself. This is why Paul talks about the I before we and the we before all. We get into trouble in the seventh and the eighth house, which is where we're looking into the we relationships if we haven't really cultivated the strong eye relationships. So you see how this wheel very often is really, it's an evolution of a story. It's really an evolution of yourself through the lens of archetypes. So we go from the eighth house to the ninth house, which is spirituality. The ninth house is your relationship to God, to source, or to the greater whole. So you see we're moving from I to we now into all. Right, so this is your relationship with your spiritual life. We go from the ninth house to the tenth house, which is your highest potential. The highest potential is really the highest work that you're here to do in this lifetime. And if you look on the wheel, the tenth house is across from the fourth house. The fourth house was your home and family life, which is your origins. So if you think about that, as an opposition, the fourth house is this is where I'm from. The 10th house, your highest potential, this is where I'm headed. So you see how this wheel is very multidimensional. They're not just isolated houses. They all work together in many ways. So we go from 10 to 11, which is group relationships, community, tribe. This is the all relationships. This is also across from the fifth house, which is joy, creativity, what you love to do, your gift. The 11th house is how you share your gift with the world, right? So this is how you share your gift with the collective. 
not just one person, but the community. This is how you see yourself fitting into the whole. And then we finish in the 12th house, which is your unconscious. And your unconscious is what connects you to the collective conscious. So Caroline says that the archetype you have in the 12th house is either the source of your greatest miracles or your greatest suffering. And you get to choose based on how you navigate it, right? So the greatest gift and miracle or the greatest suffering is the 12th house. And the 12th house being the unconscious, which is obviously what comes right before the first house. Remember, the first house is what leads from the front. The 12th house informs and leads from behind. So the 12th house is kind of like the backseat driver that you're not really consciously aware of, but is really informing a lot of the direction that you take in your life. But obviously it's unconscious, so you're not as consciously aware of it as you are, for example, what's in the first house. So that's really the evolution of the wheel. And as we'll get into, we each have one core archetype that exists in each house. And this really shows us the archetypal contract that we have in that area of our life, which we'll dive into. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this is, uh, I'm just giggling here as you're going because <laughs> looking back at my will, I'm just, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, there's so much to dive in. There's so much we're going to chat about here as we go through the wheel. Um, this is, this is fairly easy to do for people. So you basically, you've got your four, you've got your four, we, we can't break this down briefly before we dive into my will. You have your four survival archetypes. Now, if you read through Caroline Mace's work, she's got a ton of them. You can look it up online and any archetype works too. The key is you're not selecting an archetype. The archetype chose you. And it's, it's quite likely that that's been with you your entire life before you were conscious of it, before you were aware of the fact that you had this innate quality as a young person. And then at different stages, as you've grown and became more and more of an adult, you might've seen some of these other archetypes become more pronounced, but they were always there. There was, wasn't something that you decided at 40, hey, I'm a teacher now or something like that. It's not a job or profession you have. The archetypes actually belong to you on a soul level for this go around. So selecting from a list or so, and you'll know right off the bat, oh, I'm this, I'm that. Uh, Rebels, one of mine, it was like, yeah, there's, there's a fucking no brainer. It's, it's, it's in the top eight. The top eight are going to pair with the four survival archetypes. And I think the child, if I'm mistaken, not mistaken, is the only one where there's a selection, mm-hmm. correct? So within the four survival archetypes, um, you might have the nature child, the uh, innocent child, the the Christ child, the wounded child, which I think a lot of people listen to this podcast <laughs> might resonate with. Um, and that doesn't make you wounded now. It just means that my, something, some shit might have gone on while you were a kid that helped foster you into the person that you are today. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, th- there's really infinite numbers of archetypes. You know, you can make up you know, any archetype. And there's, you know, for example, I have the invisible child. The invisible child's not in Caroline Miss's um, archetypal deck. So there's six child archetypes that you can choose from, but there's, you know, there's the invisible child that's not in there. There's the adult child that's not in there that never really had a childhood and had to grow up very quickly. There's the stepchild. There's, you know, there's, a ton of different variations of the child archetype. Now, 
there's not the same for the victim, saboteur, and prostitute. There, those are just kind of like set in place, but the child archetype does have different variations. So you have the four survivals, then you choose your eight individual ones. And the eight individual ones are the ones that when you see that archetype, it's just like a hell yes. Like it just so resonates with you. And it's something that you've carried with you for a long time. It's not something you don't want to choose something that you really just connect with right now. You want to look at over the course of your journey, especially going back into your childhood, what were the real core patterns that you took on, that you played out, that you used as vehicles of expression, whether it was the athlete or the warrior, um, the mystic, whatever it is. You know, for example, a lot of people since COVID, especially, you know, in our kind of tribe, they all say, oh, I have the rebel. You know, I got the rebel archetype. And I'm like, asking them a question, do you have the rebel because of the last two and a half years? Like you needed to call that energy in because of what was going on in the world? Or did you always have a rebel from the very start? And most people say, yeah, you're right. No, it's just the last two and a half years that I just really needed the rebel energy to navigate these times. So that's just an example of where you want to look at like, what are the real deep archetypal contracts, the soul contracts that I had from the very beginning those are the ones that you want to most resonate with. Even going back and looking at like the movies you used to watch, the games you used to play, the friends you used to hang out with, the things you loved to do as a child, those are really the seeds of where those real core archetypes really are. And that's really what makes up your wheel. And, you know, I kind of want to get a little like esoteric for a second, if that's cool. But absolutely, um, brother. So if you look at a wheel... There's using the archetype wheel, there's the 12 houses. So we'll say there's 12 spokes, almost like 12 pieces of a pie. And for every wheel, there's a center point. And the center point is the point of the wheel, the axis that is actually not moving, right? The center point of any wheel is the zero point where it's perfectly still that everything rotates around. Right. So that center point of the wheel is where your soul is. Your soul, as an expression of God, is the zero point, right? It's the witness, the the part of you that's unchanging and unmoving, that's simply witnessing or observing all the activity unfolding. So your soul exists on the center point of the wheel, and all of the archetypes around the center point are what move the wheel. So the archetypes are what the soul uses to navigate life. And the key here is to utilize the archetypes as vehicles of expression, but to not get caught in them. You know, Paul talks a lot about what's called an archetypal possession, which which is where you actually get possessed by an archetype, almost like an entity possession. And that's when you get too far from the center that as you get further and further from the center, you so overly identify with an archetype that you lose connection to the center point, right? So we want to stay as close to the center point as possible where we can use all 12 archetypes, but know how to shift in and out of them. For example, a lot of professional athletes that go into retirement and then go into deep, deep depression and addiction 
That's an archetypal possession where they've so lost connection to their soul because for so long they've so identified with this one archetype that they end up sabotaging themselves, their family, etc., just to try and maintain the success of this one archetype called the athlete. So it's really important to see this wheel as something that's turning, but always stay connected to the center point that's not moving. So that's just a little understanding of how on a soul level, this all unfolds and manifests. And, you know, Paul talks about a lot of this with the tarot, for example, you know, the fool being the beginning and the end of the archetypal um, journey, which is zero, right? The fool is the zero point. It's the, um, it's the God archetype that is everything and nothing simultaneously. And every other archetype is really just how we come into individual form and navigate relationship and self and other subject object relationships. So good. So good. Yeah. My, my mind was wandering there thinking about, um, this issue of identity, you know, like on a, on a, on a a societal level, we have people arguing over (laughs) what pronouns to use, uh, what they identify as. And it's really like an identification with who you want to have sex with or what, how, what percentage of masculine versus feminine you believe yourself to be, or you want the world to believe you to be, you know, how you show up in house one so much of, of the presentation of house one to the world is an over-identification with that. And it's getting further and further away from the core, which is we're all fucking one thing here. Like we're, we're all, yeah. we, we're all of the same source and all expressing individually and beautifully, not equally, but, but beautifully and differently and uniquely as we'd want it to be. And, um, yeah, that's right. My, my head was just going off on that little, little, uh, Douglas Murray, tangent there. Yeah. Uh, let's let's dive into how I mean I spun this a year and a half ago and and um I worked with a friend of yours that had helped you guide you through your first one. Um she did a great job as really as we unpacked this together a couple of days ago on the call, so much of this really started landing for me. So it's a very uh personal. It's like taking a look into my psyche or my soul contracts, however you want to word that, maybe some combination of the two. And some of them will be laughable how obvious they are. And, and some of them I'm still trying to figure out myself. So I don't, there's not like each one of these is like, oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Um, there's a couple, you know, when I originally spun this wheel, the house nine, I didn't actually understand. And then only in the last two and a half years have I come to know house nine really well. So that's, that's a, it was probably the one I understood the least. Uh, but we'll talk about that as we get there. Let's, let's start uh, from the jump with house one and, and a refresher on house one, please. And then, and then what I, you have, you still got mine in front of you, correct? Yep. Cool. We'll just break it down for people. And then at the end, we'll tell people how to spin their own wheel. Cool. So first house, which is ego and personality. This is where we draw our sense of self from. This is the archetype that we most present to the outer world of this is who I am. So on your wheel, you have the hero. So the hero is all about, remember, we're going to explain the light and the shadow side to all of these. So the hero is all about the hero's journey, which is the journey of personal empowerment. So what you really identify with and what you really present to the world is that hero archetype of that journey of personal empowerment. So your relationship with your power. 
Now the shadow side of the hero archetype, the hero can have a little bit of a grandiosity. Remember in King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, the hero can be the immature warrior, right? Who could be very kind of like self-oriented, right? The hero wants the statue and the award and the medal and the recognition. So the hero can be that immature warrior. But the truth is that what you present to the world and what you really identify with is the hero's journey, is that journey of personal empowerment, is that, um, that desire to constantly push the limit, overcome obstacles, test yourself. You know, taking a hero's dose of plant medicine or a heroic dose, that's the hero inside of you that always wants to push the boundaries. So anything you want to add there in your first house? No, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. And, and, and on both sides of the coin, right? I mean, when I was younger, I had a football coach named Brad Matheny III, who, uh, <laughs> if I, it's funny because usually if I talk shit, I don't like to name names. Brad, Brad has his pros and cons, but he used to, he was a very negative coach. He's like, you're never going to play college football. You're going to sit the bench of some junior college, that kind of stuff. But um, at the time, he had, he had totally had a point. He'd say, get off your soapbox, Kingsbury. Like I'd be on my soapbox with a newspaper saying, step right up, step right up, telling everybody the latest news. When I talked to people as a kid, there very much was an air of, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. And he used to pull me aside and say that. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, fucking with me. Um, and that, that really is the shadow side of the hero. It's, it's, I want the adoration of others. I want your praise. I want you to hold me up on your fucking shoulders. I want to be lifted up. And, um, and I did carry that with me for a very long time. And as all archetypes are true, I'd be an idiot to say that doesn't exist anymore. Right. Like <laughs> to be like, yeah. yeah, I remember, I remember that. I remember my first beer. Yeah. No, if I'm not conscious of this archetype living inside of me, that very much can show its head again. And, um, that's, that's the importance of knowing these things about the self, but yes, this is 100% spot on and didn't, it didn't, there was no head scratching when I saw that in the first house. Well, it's like Ramda says, your neuroses never really go away. They just become kind of like distant cousins that come and visit once in a while. <laughs> um, so we're going to go through each archetype individually, but also after a while, I'm going to start pointing out some of the archetypal relationships, like the oppositions and how some of them are also interacting together. But we'll get there as we kind of work our way around. So we'll go into the second house right now, which the second house relates to life values. Life values relates to finances, material possessions, what I claim ownership of, and also how I value myself. So self-esteem and self-worth. So there you have the rebel archetype. So the rebel archetype is the archetype that challenges authority likes to do things a little bit differently, does not like to be told what to do. And the light side is we create change by challenging authority in that way. The shadow side is we might be always rejecting authority, like the, the child archetype likes to sometimes push back and be the rebel because it's starting to develop its own sense of sovereignty and autonomy. So it's natural for the child to want to push back, but it might not be in a mature way. So the shadow side being always rejecting authority, but the light side being challenging authority to create change, which is something that obviously we've all 
you know, seen over the last couple of years and something that is important to step into. So if we take a look at how that relates to your values, obviously, you know, you've done things very differently over the course of your life in relationship to, let's say, the social norm, whether it's how you utilize money, what you value in relationships, how you run your home and family life, what you choose to spend money on, what you value in terms of um, what you guys claim ownership of, but also on a deeper level, the rebel in the second house, what it shows me is your self-esteem and self-worth is dependent on you following your own intuition, not listening to authority, right? So your self-worth is really connected to following your gut and not being told what to do. You know, anytime you are being told what to do or listening to authority, that's where your self-esteem and self-worth starts to um, become diminished. So it's really about, like you say, like not being one of the sheep, so to speak. You know, that's something that you really value is thinking for yourself, staying in alignment with your values, and not compromising that or sabotaging that to some authority figure. Yeah, you really hit the nail on the head when we we had our just now, and obviously when we had our conversation a couple of days ago, and you were you were talking about how this pertains to self esteem. Um, the the most depressed times of my life where I was is where I was you know playing by the rules and doing the things that I thought I was supposed to be doing. In particular, uh, going to college to get my college degree and doing. I mean, I love playing college football. What I didn't love is school. I didn't love the classes I was taking. I didn't love anything about it, and I ended up becoming very depressed. And uh, I, I quit. I'm still a senior at Arizona State. I was like, fuck this. I don't want to have a job that requires, that even requires me to have a degree. That's not the type of work I want to be in. And um, I could see that show up there. Um, the, the shadow side of the rebel. There was a, one of my favorite lessons of life was, was getting benched my freshman year in, in college football at a junior college. So Brad Matheny was right. <laughs> I went to junior college first. And, um, and I, I was in my opinion, the best player on the entire defense. And, but I had a loud mouth and I couldn't listen to any coach. I was effectively, and in their words, uncoachable. That's a fucking problem. It's a big problem. So what they did is halfway through the season, they sat me on the bench to teach me. If you, if you don't listen and you're not coachable, you won't play a single down. And, and I could argue, maybe I wasn't the best player in the defense, but I was for sure a starter at that junior college. And, um, that was a very valuable lesson. I left that, t- that school after that season. I didn't want to play my next year there. Uh, ended up moving to Arizona, played junior college for a year, then walked on to Arizona State. But, and it didn't really translate in football because I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to play. I sat the bench at ASU and I didn't get to play. When I entered my fight career, that always stuck with me. And it forced me to listen to whatever coach I was working with. Even what if I thought that they were, they were teaching me something that was incorrect and I thought it was dog shit, like that's not going to work in a fight. Having learned that lesson, I would at least try and give it a real full go try with whatever they were trying to teach me. And then if I liked it and it worked, I would, I would, I would adopt that. If it didn't, then I could say, Hey coach, I don't think this is working out for me. Can we tweak it in some way? But it made me effectively coachable at that up until that point, that was the shadow rebel. That was the one that said, fuck you. You don't know what you're talking about. I know everything and I'm going to do it my way. 
And, um, and it cost me a lot, but it taught me a lot. And I still hold that as one of the, the harshest lessons I've received, but one of the best that I ever received. So that was a, a huge nod to the shadow of the rebel, really changing the course of my life. Well, this leads, segues perfectly into the third house, which is having the athlete in the house of communication. Right? So what you just shared is also the light and shadow side of the athlete. So the third house being communication, expression, interaction, perception. So someone who you say is uncoachable, the reason for someone being uncoachable relates to a breakdown in communication, right? Someone who's not coachable is someone that there's, there's a, it, it's very challenging to communicate with that person effectively. So if you look at the light and shadow side of the athlete, you know, the light side of the athlete, yes, you're competitive. You're, you know, you have a resiliency, you're strong, you're capable, you're, um, there's a level of accountability. So when I look at the light side of the athlete in communication, it's you hold people accountable to their potential, right? You don't speak to their victim, you speak to their potential, right? You see what they're capable of and you always speak to that. You know, that's what I really see as the light side of the athlete in communication. The shadow side might be, maybe we're always trying to put on a performance or maybe instead of competing, we're comparing, or maybe we're holding people so accountable and we're so attached to this highest potential that maybe there's a lack of humility. Or maybe the, the breakdown in communication is that shadow side of the athlete that you talked about that was not coachable, which is not relatable, right? There's a hard time relating. So the third house is all how we communicate and relate. And obviously in college, what you were sharing is where you were learning the light and shadow side of the athlete and how that shows up in your ability to communicate and relate to others especially when it comes to coaches or authority figures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, to that as well, I, I feel that the shadow side of the athlete as a communicator is one in which lacks compassion. Mm -hmm. And, and, and if I'm only speaking to their greatest good and their highest self and not, not taking into account, like, yeah, that happened. Yeah. We are starting from a place that's nowhere near where I started from, or, you know, where, wherever the discrepancy is, whatever the uphill battle is, if I'm not actually being compassionate about where this person's starting in life or what they have to deal with or have had to deal with, that can be a problem too, right? Because there are things we got to work through to get to the ability to go full, go towards our potential, right? Those are the things we yeah. can't look away from. We got to look into it. And the athlete sometimes is uh, not present for that or speaks very matter-of-factly. You know, I'm doing it right now. I do it on the podcast. It, you know, when she said this, I, I got it as I started listening to myself talk. I, I brought it up to my wife. I was like, I figured the athlete would be somewhere else. And she's like, listen to yourself. <laughs> she goes, listen. I was like, oh, all right. And as I saw it with that, it really made sense. Um, I think, you know, from, an early, from early on, uh, my father had a very, when he needed my attention, it was matter-of-fact. There was no fucking around. It was very to the point. Um, before the voice would raise, there was just a tone and then the voice would raise and it was like, all right, I'm, you got me, you know, but 
with that and, and coaches as well, I think we had in, in Pop Warner football at eight years old, we had a couple of Marine calisthenics coaches that were retired guys that were in their fifties or sixties that were our head football coaches, you know? So there was no fucks given. Like if somebody was talking in line while we were going over a play, it'd be a hundred yard bear crawl and back 200 yards total, the length of the football field and back. Right. So like from very early on, I, I saw there was kind of a no bullshit approach to, to getting things done. And, um, you know, you could talk to people, you could add, coax it out of them. You can ask them nicely, Hey, why don't you try this? And I think, you know, for, for me, I always appreciated players, coaches, but really, um, the, the athlete that spoke to me, the, that form of communication of this is serious, pay attention. This is how we go about it. And just very matter of fact became something that I adopted and it became, and, and when you know it, you know it, right? So like, if I know what the fuck I'm talking about when it comes to diet, health, well, what any of these things that we cover on the podcast, I can say it with a certain level of authority because I've lived it and I've experienced it, but it still comes out that way. I don't have to say it that way. So one of the things that I've really been working on since I've become a coach in fit for service is how can I soften that so that it lands on more people? that it, it, it hits the lowest common denominator and more ears will listen because a 55-year-old woman might not be as receptive to that form of communication as a 20-year-old man. You know, it's just a completely different ball game. And I think that's been the, the, the bigger work of me, you know, since going through this the first time is how can I, how can I soften that approach so that it lands with more people and, and it effectively can reach more people because it's still, whether it's true or not, it's not just you know, presenting the facts, it's how it's presented. And I think that's an important form, you know, important piece of communication that sometimes gets overlooked. Yeah. When you were sharing that, I was just thinking of, you know, you know, working as a Czech practitioner, you know, we do a lot of corrective exercise and rehabilitation. And there's been so many times over the last 10 years where I'm, you know, coaching someone who maybe has never worked out before or never played a sport. And I'm trying to get them to squat just to do like a basic, like proper body weight squat and how there's the athlete inside of me that from a young age was always training and lifting weights. And that is so impatient with someone <laughs> who like doesn't know how to move properly. And there's just like this dragon inside of me that I have to tame while I'm working with this, maybe like 55 year old woman that like has lower back pain and has never like lifted a dumbbell before. And I have to be so patient in just walking her step by step into how to do a proper squat. And just that dragon of the athlete inside of me that has zero patience. And it's kind of like, you know, the strength card in Tarot where you got to, you know, you have the lion with its mouth open and it's got the woman that's just kind of like taming the lion, which is your ego. Mm -hmm. and being able to work with that. So that's, that's bear soul card doing, uh, doing checks, uh, uh -huh. <laughs> numerology uh -huh. on that. Yeah. That's bears in a nutshell. Yep. <laughs> Just I, I throw that out to you. So if you look at the first quadrants of your wheel, which is house one, two, and three, you have the hero, the rebel, and the athlete. Those are very powerful masculine archetypes that you kind of like start out with right out of the gate. And what comes to mind here is a lot of your healing work is the balance between power and humility. 
right? The shadow side of those first three archetypes is a lot of power and not a lot of humility. And a lot of our journey is about balancing those two polarities of the masculine power and the feminine humility. You know, all power and no humility, we could say is kind of like a a dictator, a narcissist, you know, et cetera. All humility and no power is kind of like that, like disempowered victim, like that wounded feminine um, that has a hard time really kind of having backbone and kind of stepping into one's power, standing up for oneself. So the first three houses, that's kind of like a big theme is like, how do you balance your power and your, and your humility so you can have, let's say, empowered humility um, and not venture into either extreme? Yeah, that's brilliant. And as we dive into the next three, we can see how this wheel is uh, auto-balancing. Oh, yeah. So now we get into the fourth house, which is home and family life. So this relates to home and family of origin. And this also relates to current home and current family. So home and family life, you have the wounded child. So what we would want to do is we would want to go back to your origins, go back to your home environment, your family of origin, and explore, okay, first of all, like what are the core wounds? What are the core wounds that are really kind of at the basis of this child archetype? And how are they continuing to express themselves today? And when my child's archetype takes over, what is its strategy? For example, a lot of times when we get into family situations, we have a tendency to regress in age. It's called age regression. So maybe I go home for Thanksgiving and I'm with my parents and my siblings and you know other family members and Maybe they can trigger that 12-year-old wounded child inside of me faster than I can blink. And all of a sudden, I'm acting out old programs. You know, so we want to get clear, first of all, what are, the, what are the childhood wounds? How does that relate to your home and family environment? So origins. And also, looking at your current home and current family, how does that wounded child possibly present itself? So remember, the shadow side of the wounded child is acting out those wounds, potentially wounding others, or just operating from that place of woundedness. It might be from a place of blame, insecurity, etc., depending on what the wound is. The light side is the wounded child has compassion, has compassion for other people and their challenges, other people and their struggles, but what we really want to look into is how did your home environment create the wounded child and what were the patterns of adaptation that you used to navigate those situations? So for example, you've shared with me and probably on the podcast, the environment that you grew up in did not always feel safe, right? It may have felt violent at times. Maybe there was a lot of conflict. So there's an aspect of your wounded child that did not feel safe, which you could say, may have been what drew you to fighting, for example, right? The ability to protect myself, the ability to defend myself. So what were the childhood wounds? How did my home environment shape that? And what are the patterns of adaptation that I use to navigate life going forward? Right. And this might be different for somebody else who doesn't have the wounded child, correct? But it's still going to apply to your home and your personal history. Correct. So... 
you know, for example, I have the hermit in my fourth house. So for me, in my home and family life, especially wherever it is that I live, I need a lot of solitude. I Mm. need quiet time and space. Um, A lot of times, you know, in my home and family of origin and current home and family life with my girlfriend, you know, her kids from her previous marriage, a lot of times it's kind of like, where's Greg? You know, Greg just disappears. And I'm, you know, (laughs) in my closet (laughs) meditating for like four hours. And it's just like, I... I really need that quiet alone time in order for me to be able to engage other people in a relationship. And if I don't get that, I tend to shut down. The shadow side is where I might, um, let's say, withdraw too much. I might use my home or my own space as a way of withdrawing from society or withdrawing from family, withdrawing from relationship. But that in and of itself could be, you know, a way that I adapted to an environment that didn't feel safe. I always had to seek my own space as a way of um, ensuring my safety. So, you know, the wounded child's, you know, my hermit could be an adaptation to the wounded child, but I have a tendency to have the the hermit in my fourth house. So that's, um, it's, it's different for everybody, but as we'll see going forward, once we start to look at the oppositions, and we start to look at how the archetypes are interacting and the houses are interacting, it'll also make more sense why each archetype is exactly where it is. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this makes perfect sense to me, was especially as I think of adaptation, right? Yes. And it wasn't something that I really understood. I mean, I had done dozens of plant medicine journeys, but never fully illuminated this until I started tracking it in the current family life. So like, where, where does the little Kyle show up in relationship? And the adaptation that I had was shutting down. I would get real quiet. I'd go within. I'd go as far inside myself as I possibly could. Anytime there was a fight, um, in fact, I would. I don't even. I wouldn't even cry a lot of the time because I've had to work on that. You know, as an adult, allowing myself to feel and express emotion, and I do it a lot now. I think I cry a lot on on podcasts, but um, I would just go so far inward. I'd, I'd move. I just as, as far away from the situation as I could without leaving the room basically. Mm -hmm. And I started to track this with my wife. Anytime she would yell at me, it was like mom was yelling at me. And I, and I, and and I didn't really, it it took me years to make this association. In fact, we were living in, in our current home, which we moved into in 2019 when I finally got it and I saw the pattern and it fucking blew me away. Uh, another one that I tracked that I picked up, um, earlier once we had come to Austin. So still fairly recently, about five years ago was abandonment. Anytime my family, where my mom and dad would get into a big fight, if it was big enough, my mom would just peace out. She'd grab a purse. She'd say, fuck you, I'm out. She'd jump in her car and she'd go over to a friend's house and stay three, five days. Well, while she's gone, uh, I'm feeling the full weight of that with my dad and it wasn't a good situation. And without even recognizing this pattern, I looked through previous relationships, a little easier, tip for shadow work, look into your past relationships and see if there's any patterns. And that might still be happening now. You know, the shadow is inherently outside of your purview. So you can't just say, hey, what am I doing right now that's fucked up? You're not going to be able to see it. The ego will hide it from you. But if you see that pattern from before, then you can illuminate if that's potentially going on now. And as it turns out, every long-term relationship I've been in, if shit hit the fan, I would fucking get in the car and peace out. I had a college sweetheart in Arizona when I was at ASU. And sometimes we'd be in a fight at midnight. I'd get in my car and I'd drive to San Jose. 
from midnight to 8 a.m. in the morning, I would be on the road just to get the fuck out. And I'd stay there for a week and then come home. And I'd done that enough times to see that, oh, there's, there's the potential for that. Having kids, I never really pulled that. There was one situation where it came up and I gotten, I gotten the, the Prius. My wife and I laugh about this. The Prius was my getaway car back when I owned a Prius. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember running out of the house, speechless. I jump in the Prius. This thing backs up at like three miles per hour. You know, <laughs> she comes out pissed. She's like, where the fuck are you going? Get back here, screaming at me. There's a lady pushing her child. She's like, hey, and waves at her. I hit the gas and the front wheel drive of this thing chirps the tires and then speeds off in slow motion. And I made it, you know, I made it, I think, to the first stop sign and, and I caught it. You know, thankfully that first time it happened with her and turned around. We've been living together 11 years now. And, um, but yeah, you know, these things do resurface. They're not, they're not ever fully gone unless they're made fully aware. And then we have that choice to, okay, this, this, the thing that I want to do. Do I want to go inside and hide from expressing myself? Can I, can I take a deep breath and actually feel all the feelings I'm feeling and still communicate in a way that is, is nonviolent and in a way where I can be heard in a way where I can actually listen to her and see where it is that she's coming from and let go of the need to be right. This is, you know, the great course of mastery that is relationships. It's, it's one of the, the one of the double-edged swords of always wanting to, to, to have fulfillment through a partner is you're going to get that person's shit and your person's shit, and you're going to mix it in a bowl and some stuff's going to come up, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that great work can be very illuminating. But this, this wounded child, as we dove into this, um, really made a lot of sense to me why it's in this fourth house. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so then we get into the fifth house, which the fifth house is your house of joy, your house of creativity, your house of sexuality, your house of this is what I love to do. This is my gift. But it's really, it's like the house of fun and play, the house of love. And it's also the house of your inner child. So it's very interesting going from the wounded child in the fourth house to the fifth house, which is the house of the child where you have the seeker. So one of my first questions that I would ask you if I was working with you is, what is the child in you seeking now that it didn't have back then? You know, Mm -hmm. that's an interesting question going from the fourth house to the fifth house, from the wounded child to the seeker. So it's like the child in you is seeking something that it hasn't yet found. So the fifth house being house of joy and creativity, sexuality, obviously you've shared quite a bit on your podcast about, um, you know, open relationships, things like that, use of um, plant medicines. So sexuality, pleasure, novelty, these are all things that your seeker has used as a vehicle for finding truth. Now, what we have to be very conscious of is to make sure that our seeker is seeking truth and not getting addicted or creating any sort of bondage to something, right? So whether it's sexual pleasure, whether it's multiple partners, whether it's any sort of novelty, what we're really seeking is creativity, flow, and truth. Those are the three things that we're usually seeking is creativity flow and truth and to make sure that the seeker stays in the light side which is the pursuit of truth and not the seeker becoming either a wanderer or an addict where for the seeker it's never enough 
right? That's the shadow side of the seeker is the seeker is always seeking. So it doesn't know when enough is enough. And so that's where in the fifth house, you have to be very, very mindful of what I'm using as a vehicle to pursue truth and when enough is enough. Yeah, it's a big one. I think when we talked earlier, I mentioned, you know, these these three one-off ceremonies with ayahuasca that I did month after month, you know, three months straight. And uh, I mentioned this before on the podcast. It, in each one of those, ayahuasca kept telling me meditate and do yoga. And, and the second, the first time I heard it, I was like, wow, cool. The second time I was like, why are you telling me this still? And I was like, oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't started actually practicing this. And by the third one, you know, when I was like, I promise I'm going to do it. Uh, give me some new information. It was like, no, dude, this is, this is all you get. And, and it, it, and, and really that forced me to look at that. And I took a couple of years off of working with ayahuasca for that very reason to start yoga and meditation, which is, you know, again, as I, um, the, the Oracle and the matrix is one of my favorite analogies for this because, you know, the Oracle could be psilocybin. It could be a Vipassana, you know, silent meditation retreat. It could be uh, a vision quest, four days, no food, no water. It could be a darkness retreat. It could be anything. It doesn't have to be plant medicines, but whatever the Oracle tells you, it's for you and you alone, right? Neo Mm -hmm. comes back from seeing the Oracle and uh, Morpheus warns him, don't tell me whatever she said is for you and for you alone, not for me. And she told him he's not the one, not because he wasn't the one, because that's what he needed to hear in that moment, right? Mm-hmm. So there's no hard truths of, hey, I was told to do this and this, so that's what everyone needs to do. That's a fallacy. That's what I needed to do. And as I started to do that, things started to open up again. But yeah, I've, I've, I've noticed even uh, something that I consider to be quite positive in the right container, the right set and setting as ayahuasca, um, there are you know many people, right? <laughs> many people that keep going back to the wishing well over and over again, never finding it in themselves. And, and honestly, it's, it's only been the last couple of years since my dark night of the soul where I've really had to sit with everything and let intuition guide me in letting that, that inner North star as my compass show me the way instead of waiting for the next ceremony to ask the big questions or waiting for the next fast to ask the big questions. No, I can access this now if I actually create space into myself and practice what I know needs to be practiced. And that has helped me find balance with the seeker. Yeah. So it's seeking within rather than, you know, going within versus going without. Yeah. It's like the Zen, you know, teaching goes. So, which is very interesting that you share this because you're, you're segueing your archetypes very well, going from seeker in the fifth house to the student in the sixth house. So the sixth house being work and health, right? So work and health, this relates to work as in your job, your occupation, your career but also work relates to your inner work, health relating to obviously physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. So you have the student there, which is obviously very fitting given what you do. For example, podcasting, which is your work, but a lot of your podcasting is around inner work and health. So the student obviously loves you know, lifelong learning, devotion to knowledge. But really the big thing with the student in the sixth house is applied knowledge to learn and then apply. That's first and foremost. The light side is learning and applying. The shadow side is accumulating knowledge, but not putting it into practice, right? Like ayahuasca saying, you need to meditate, you need to meditate and gathering information, but not actually taking action on it, right? So you have the light and the shadow side of the student in the sixth house. Also, when it comes to inner work and when it comes to our health, Something that's very interesting is how much are we learning versus unlearning? 
You know, a lot of our healing and a lot of our inner work is more unlearning than it is learning. So balancing the learning with the unlearning, I think, is also an important aspect of the student in the sixth house. Now, we'll get into oppositions in a little bit, which will also kind of take this to another level, kind of peel it back another layer. So anything you wanted to add there to the sixth house for you having the student there? No, I mean that just that's that's spot on. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Bruce Lee. You know, the the subtraction of things that are not good for you is is equal to, if not better, than the addition of things that are good for you. Exactly. And it's a very it's a very important piece. But as we spoke about before, it, the embodiment has been one of the the telltale signatures of really what I pride myself on. You know that that I that you know I don't talk about the things that I learn. I do the things that I learn, and then talk about that experience. And I think that's a um, a key differentiator. You know, Paul uses the 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 old quote: "If you if you could you could read every book, but if you don't apply it, it doesn't become wisdom. Then you're the smartest guy in the room that doesn't know shit." I love that. I love it because anybody can regurgitate something they heard on Rogan's or some you know whatever Andrew Huberman just said. If they're not practicing it, living it, then it it just falls short. I think the 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 world might I do much better when I'm applying these things to myself. And when I'm not, like you said, you know, it, it, it definitely feels like there's a hole or an emptiness, uh, a sense of fraud if I'm not actually applying these things. Absolutely. So now we get into the second half of the wheel, which as we go through the second half, now we can start introducing some oppositions. So we get into the seventh house, which is one-on-one relationships. This is now where we're orienting ourselves towards the other, and the other is mirroring back to us parts of ourselves. So one-on-one relationships, this is marriages. This is all relationships with other beings, but just one-on-one in the seventh house. Here you have the addict. So what's very interesting is the addict in the seventh house is across from the hero in the first house. So when you were talking about your hero archetype on the playing field as a child, you were talking about this part of you that was kind of like always like, I want your praise, I want your praise, I want your praise, I want your praise. And that's a bit of the addict energy in one-on-one relationships. So what am I addicted to? I'm addicted to other people's praise or approval. So the addict says, okay, in relationships, how can I get my fix of that? Right? Yeah. So the addict in one on one relationships, the shadow side is that kind of like bondage, that enmeshment or that codependency of what I'm getting from this relationship that I haven't learned how to offer to myself. And I actually need the other for me to feel whatever that thing is. Right? So there might be, you know, a lack of congruency, a lack of authenticity. You know, like Paul Check says, all addiction is an attempt at safe love. So where do we use relationships as a way of receiving safe love? But in the process, we might be sabotaging true connection, true authenticity, or vulnerability. Um, The light side of the addict in relationship would be healing those enmeshments, healing those codependencies, or cutting those cords. So your two eyes You become two eyes coming together as a we rather than the enmeshment of just a we, but the loss of the I, if that makes sense. And, you know, Paul Czech language. 
transcend and include, right? You transcend yeah. the, the, you still include the individuality of each person. You don't lose yourselves in, in relationship. You, you still stand as your own individual person and, and a polished person at that who continues to do their own work. And, and then you, you sync up and form something greater than two individuals are. Exactly. So the addict in the seventh house is based on the false belief of what I think I need from you because I can't yet access that within myself. Um, which, you know, we all need to work on that. But obviously this is a contract that you have on your wheel for you to really focus on within yourself, which is very interesting um, leading into the eighth house. The eighth house is other people's resources. Other people's resources, essentially the eighth house is what I want or need from you. So it's very interesting going from the addict in the seventh house into the eighth house. So the eighth house, you have the fool. So the fool archetype is, you know, in Tarot, it's, it's the soul who is free, right? It's, it's, it's the person that really has ultimate freedom and is not um, bound to anything. It's, it's quite unbound. It's the, it's the zero or the beginning and the end of the Tarot journey. So what's interesting is going from the addict in the seventh house to the fool in the eighth house is kind of like you releasing yourself from the chains of addiction in relationship to what I thought I wanted or needed from you. It's kind of like the fool in the eighth house breaks free from the addiction in the, sec- in the seventh house and says, I actually don't want or need anything from you. I'm just here to be with you. Right? So it's, it's, it's being able to be in relationship to the other and be in relationship to what others have to offer you, but not create an addiction or an enmeshment in relationship to whatever that is. You also have the fool across from the rebel, right? The rebel in your second house and the fool in the eighth house. So you could say that the reason you were rebelling was to create freedom for yourself. Right, So the rebel is really challenging authority in order to create freedom. And I think there's a lot of power in having the fool in the eighth house being across from the rebel, but also freeing yourself from the chains of the addict in the house prior. I think that's really powerful in that evolution of your archetypes. Yeah, beautiful. And that might be why you also chose to have an open relationship dynamic for a period of time. It may have been to evolve you from the addict in the seventh house to the fool in the eighth house, which is whatever I thought I was addicted to, wanted or needed from you, I can offer that to myself now. So now I can love you with more freedom. Yeah. And that's certainly what our journey did. You know, at a certain point in time, uh, you know, just in the E, the, the thoughtfulness and mindfulness of our children. Um, mm-hmm. we've, we've not talked too much about that in the past couple of years, but it is certainly something that we'll talk about in the future. And, and really one of the key takeaways from our period being open and then going back to some form of monogamish is, is the fact that it was a great deal of growth and it led us back to each other in a way that was previously, it had not been attained. You know, sure. the way in which we love each other and see each other having had contrast 
very much has allowed us to break free of whatever uh, chains we had bound each other to and and can now show up in a way for one another that it, it just, it feels more free. It feels you know like a committed relationship that is by choice, not by design or by tradition. And, um, and with the full knowledge that we, we write our own path, you know, and, and that, that is enough for me at this point to, to feel free and not to feel tied down or to feel, oh, fuck, man, this is it for the rest of my life, you know, to sure. truly know like, yeah, we're, we're open to unique, fun experiences when the time is right and the right container, right people. Sure. Um, will we have, you know, polyamorous more than one love? Fuck no. <laughs> we learned through that as well, you know, but all of these things strengthened us in a way. And I thank God, you know, like I absolutely thank God that it strengthened our relationship and, um, and brought us closer together because it was, it was necessary and it was hands down the hardest journey we had ever been on, you know? Sure. Sure. So we go from the eighth house into the ninth house. The ninth house is the house of spirituality. This is your relationship with God source, the greater whole. So there you have the victim there. So obviously you shared earlier that this was a hard one for you to kind of nail down for yourself. Now, if you look generally, what is the victim kind of like, how does that show up in the ninth house? Well, a lot of people feel victimized by their relationship with God, whether it's through, you know, I'm going to be punished or sin or, you know, what they're told in the church or how they victimize themselves in the name of spirituality, you know, self-sacrifice, you know, martyrdom. Martyrdom, yep. Exactly. So it's obvious how that could show up in the ninth house, but obviously everyone is different and you have this for your own unique reason, your own contract. So obviously you shared with me quite a bit about your experiences on certain medicine journeys and some of the hell realms and feeling kind of like victimized in those ways. But really the contract that I see in the ninth house with the victim is always looking as to what vantage point am I viewing my reality from? You know, am I viewing my reality from, you know, the first level where all I see is safety and security and my survival archetypes? Or can I climb up to, like Paul checks as the lifeguard tower, or climb up to a higher vantage point and actually see how everything is woven together? You know, a lot of people feel victimized by, you know, maybe the circumstances that happen in their life or what they think is happening to them. But then if they actually climb up to a soul level, maybe there's some aspect of divine plan as to how they can see how these life circumstances were happening for them. So the victim in the ninth house for me and my perspective is all about what vantage point are you viewing your reality from? And being able to climb up higher and higher to be able to see the whole of it, but also not losing connection to the ground level where there is pain and there is suffering and not spiritually bypassing. So if we take a look at the opposition here, the ninth house is across from the third house. The third house is communication where you have the athlete. We could say the athlete and the victim across from each other if the athlete doesn't have humility, it might victimize others. And also, we might use the strength and power of the athlete as a front to protect our inner victim or to protect us from being victimized. Maybe 
we had to be the strongest guy in the locker room because if we weren't, we might get pushed into our locker. You know, we might get our head shoved into a locker or something. So we might get, actually get canned. Use- I got canned by the seniors. They, there you go. <laughs> they'd pick, pick, pick me up and throw me in a trash can. And, and thankfully I was tall enough and squirrely enough that they couldn't get the tra- me into the trash can. So there you go. The guy so, held me and then they picked the trash can up and put it over me. But that was, yeah. that was it, you know, victimized, uh, uh, bullied and then, and then became a bully and that, that all, yeah. that was full circle. So yeah, I get that from all sides. Yeah. So seeing the athlete across from the victim, if we don't have humility, we might victimize others. Or we might use the athlete as a front to protect ourselves from being victimized ever again because you had that experience with bullies or in the locker room, etc. That's where the bully might, or being bullied, you might become a bully. And then the victim is all about climbing up to the highest vantage point of reality and seeing how things are happening for me, not necessarily to me, but not losing touch of the ground level where there is pain and suffering in life and we have to have the empathy and compassion to that as well. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like this last year and a half specifically has been a deep dive into this ninth house for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you, you touched on it. You know, with the with the the thirty grams of mushrooms and with the five meo react- reactivations, which I've had you know entire podcasts on. Um, you know, really, if I was to put it in, sum it up into a nutshell of what I was seeing was that I, if I could word it in one way, it would be that. Consciousness is a mistake that I am in hell, and the 3D is just a you know, like I I I keep I keep playing make believe that I'm not actually there, you know. But but this is the ter- eternal reality that I'm in, which is 100 percent uh, the negative, the shadow side of the victim, right? And there's only in seeing that and catching it from other people. Like I talked to you about, um, you know, we had Richard Rudd on the podcast, and one of the things he said, uh, the author of Gene Keys, was that the, the great transcendence of humanity is one in which we all transcend the victim archetype. We all move through that and understand it in its fullness and recreate ourselves and in turn recreate society in a world that's that's absolutely unimaginable from this vantage point. And you know, whether that's true or not, that is one thing that I will call into myself. That is the thing that I'm going to shoot for and and have as a target uh, because it makes sense to me. And and truly, you know, if I think about the the highest level of consciousness at its core is we're one thing expressing and knowing itself. And, and that offers me choice that offers yeah. me the ability to not be the victim and to create reality as I see fit, at least through my own eyes and within what's in my control. And that certainly applies to how I live my life. And I think that's been, um, a beautiful piece to alchemize through these journeys. I recently had a journey with Hamilton Souther that we talked about on the podcast where I got to track, um, Everything that I, that I had accomplished and, and all of the, the people that I had met and all the wonderful, the love that was throughout my life from my kids to my wife to all of the amazing experiences and really see, I had a hand in creating that. And in doing so, I was not a victim, you know, that I have been in, there has been a degree of control over what I bring in and, and who I work with and even my job, you know, like working with Aubrey, Caitlin, and Godsey, and getting to meet all these great people like yourself and Paul, and Paul's a homie, you know, like the, the, that, that is, those are fantastic gifts, blessings on blessings. And um, that certainly would, would just slay any, any idea that this is um, some type of 
bad, you know, karmic shithole that that the Archons run. That's some weird spinoff of uh, Belzebub's creation. You know, whatever <laughs> uh, David Icke's interpretation of the Gnostics is, um, that that can have po- holes poked through it in a number yeah. of ways and proved otherwise. Yeah, I think one of you mentioned, you know, a lot of people in their spiritual life, they, they might feel a victim to their karma, you know? So that's, you know, I've, I've had a lot of clients come to me and whatever, you know, situation was going on in their life, they've maybe got a reading from a psychic and the psychic told them, you know, this is part of your karma and you have to live this out. And then we do their archetype wheel and you see, this is all just showing up as your archetypes. You know, this is not your karma. This is, these are the contracts that this is not your karma as in something that's being done to you, Yeah. you know, because of some, something you did in a past life, you know, these are the contracts, which means they're the lessons you're here to learn. They're the things you're here to grow through. And these are your relationships with your own power. So I think a lot of times we might play the victim based on our beliefs around karma, but also, you know, I love the athlete across from the victim for you because the light side of the athlete in communication is you're communicating with people's potential and holding them accountable, holding them accountable to it, right? You're not speaking to their victim. Like I love, I love when Kelly Brogan says, I don't speak to people's victim. I speak to their adult consciousness. And by speaking to their victim, I'm feeding into their narrative. You know, I'm feeding in, I'm feeding their disempowerment, you know? So I think the athlete across from the victim really kind of like holds that level of accountability and empowerment and kind of like starves out part of that victim narrative of disempowerment and defeat. And I really love that. Um, You know, I'm just going to share before we move on just a different perspective. For example, I have the prostitute in the ninth house. So just to give people like a different archetype in that house to say, okay, well, how would something else show up, especially one of the survival archetypes? So when I cast my wheel, I had the prostitute in the ninth house, which means I had the spiritual prostitute, you know, the spiritual hooker. So I'm like, (laughs) what in the world does that mean? Well, when I explored it, it's like, well, how much of people's prayer life is a negotiation with God, right? How much of people's prayer is, God, I want this outcome. And if you give me this outcome, I promise I will do this or I won't do that anymore. Or how much of people's idea of unconditional love is just pleasing everybody? Or how much do I sabotage spiritual guidance because I need some sort of guarantee to ensure my physical survival? Right? These are different aspects of the spiritual prostitute rather than the spiritual victim. So you could see my contract in the ninth house is really mastering the prostitute there, which is self-worth, self-esteem, and being able to follow my intuition even when it doesn't feel comfortable or I don't feel like I have some sort of guarantee that ensures my safety and security and not negotiating with God as a form of prayer. And then the final aspect would be, yes, I'm practicing unconditional love, but I also have a backbone with boundaries. 
right? So that's just an example of how a different archetype might show up in that house, in the house of spirituality. That's beautiful, brother. So now we get into the 10th house, which is your highest potential. So there you have the warrior. So obviously, you know, you've had a very successful fighting career. You were a football player. So there's aspects of the physical warrior that you really connect with. And the 10th house is across from the fourth house. Remember, we said the fourth house home and family life, where you're from, you have the wounded child. And now you see the 10th house across from the wounded child, which is the warrior, which means the warrior stepped in initially to protect the wounded child. So that might be the physical warrior, initially fighting, playing football, you know, being very strong, disciplined in your physical life, training, etc. But the highest potential doesn't stop there. To me, it's about the evolution from the physical warrior to the spiritual warrior. And you talked about, you know, nonviolent communication in your home and family life. That's the wounded child going from the physical warrior to the spiritual warrior of, I don't have to fight or flight. I can actually stay in this, feel what I need to feel and communicate nonviolently. That's actually the highest expression of the warrior in the 10th house, because that's the spiritual warrior. Also, you started out in the first house with the hero, right? So the hero is what your ego most identified with. And then you have the warrior in the highest potential. So if we look at, for example, like we said in King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, the hero is kind of like the child version of the warrior, right? The warrior is really the, the one who's matured past that stage. So the hero can be in service to I, where the warrior is in service to all, right? The warrior doesn't necessarily need the recognition that the hero needs. So you see the evolution from the hero in the first house, the ego, to the warrior in the 10th house, your highest potential of I'm in service to all, not just my own ego, my own identity, and I'm growing from the physical warrior to the spiritual warrior. That's beautifully stated. There's a couple of pieces that I got from King Warrior Magician Lover that really illuminated that uh, in ways in which I had not been this in growing up, you know, from going into my shell in relationships versus, you know, actually sitting with it, feeling what I'm feeling and, and still finding a way to center myself and communicate properly. But the warrior is one in wh- who, who faces life frontally, mm-hmm. right? You don't look away from the problem. You don't sidestep the problem. You don't look past the problem. You face it head on. And uh, that's been, you know, a, a big calling card of, of how I want to live my life. And I've been inspired by others. You know, JP Sears has been a big inspiration to me in the last two and a half years because of what he's stood for and how he's done that publicly, you know, through his social media and, and not, not, you know, sugarcoated any of the thing, any of his beliefs and any of his knowledge and wisdom because of the fact that he could be canceled for it. He's actually used that as a way to catapult and, and be even more truer than ever, you know? And I think that's been, um, having people like him in my life as a friend has been a, a great gift to me because it's enabled me, you know, it's given me permission, right. And it's given me permission to, to, to really continue to fight the good fight and to say the things that I believe to be true and to do so frontally, head on, and not worry about what the outcome may be, but actually saying yes to the world as it is and yes to what is necessary mm-hmm. through communication to, to illuminate these things and, and, and come to a place where we all share um, 
a shared horizon of what's coming. Yeah. So if you think about that story you shared about when you were at ASU and getting in fights with your girlfriend and then hopping in the car and driving to, you know, San Jose. So that's the wounded child that says run. And then the warrior now says, you know, says to the wounded child, I got you, but we can sit in this. You know, we can feel this. We can stay connected. We can face this. We can be a container for this. We can still communicate in a nonviolent way. We don't have to immediately shift into fight or flight. So I love the warrior in the highest potential across from the wounded child in the fourth house of this is where I'm from and this is where I'm going. It's very powerful. So I think people can start to see, you know, yes, we went through, we're going through each archetype and house individually. But once you start to look at the oppositions and the transitions from one to the next, you start to see how this wheel is very interdimensional and how each archetype is actually interacting with every single one of them. And the houses that they're in are really um, exactly where they're meant to be. Absolutely. So now we get into the 11th house. The 11th house is group relationships, so community your relationship with the collective and the greater whole. This is also, you know, the gift that you have to offer the world. The 11th house is where you have the prostitute. This is my gift to the world, brother. Your gift to the world. (laughs) A damn good prostitute. (laughs) (laughs) So what this says to me, aside from where your mind wants to take it, is... My greatest gift to the world is offered when I don't compromise myself, when I don't censor myself, when I don't negotiate myself, whether it's, you know, a group, a community, a tribe, a, a business, maybe, you know, offering you a shitload of money, but saying you have to operate in this way. And that actually being a way that you stifle your greatest gifts and what you're here to offer the world. So the prostitute in the shadow form might say yes, because it's safe, it's comfortable, it's a guarantee, I'm getting a steady paycheck, but I know I'm not really bringing my gifts to the world. So the prostitute in the 11th house says in relationship to group, an organization, a business, a community, a tribe. I'm not willing to compromise myself. I must stay true to myself, maintain my self-worth. And as I do that, my greatest gifts are then presented to the world. So just paying attention to where we might compromise or negotiate ourselves in relationship to these group dynamics. Yeah, this, this, and, and, you know, previously before our call, I didn't, I still hadn't really tracked this until you explained it in that way. And then it was like, oh shit. Yeah. I know exactly where this turning point was. And it was when, uh, I was hanging out with Paul and, and Paul read me like a book and said, have you read essentialism by Greg McCown? And I was like, no, he gave me five more, but that book was the first that he had mentioned. And I read that cover to cover twice. And it really changed changed my life. It changed my work life. It changed really the value, as he says. You know, what, what is what is your yes worth when you have no value to your no? And and that book is such a. We'll link to it in the show notes. Such a phenomenal book because it really teaches you the power of no, but it also teaches you 
how to get very clear on what it is that you're available for. And with that, you know, that really does speak to the prostitute archetype in all forms. Um, he, you know, that's exactly what he's covering in that book without, without covering it. That's exactly what he's covering, you know, and that, that for me was, was absolutely life-changing in how it pertains to my work and how it pertains to what I'm available for as a friend, you know, having a dad, what I'm available for, even as a dad, I know that my wife and I have certain needs that have to be met. Uh, we have to lift weights a couple days, once or twice a week, you know, one being a minimum, but if we can get in two, we're going to be pretty good. We can handle a lot of life stressors and the, the stress, just the overall stress of being a parent. If we're taking care of ourselves on a physical level, if we're getting enough sleep and, um, you know, she's, she's still in the position of not getting enough sleep, but the, the, if I can change my schedule to make sure she gets to work out and hit the sauna, that goes miles. I mean, that's foreplay, believe it or not. That is, that is a relationship enhancer. And um, knowing that about myself and knowing that about her, it's actually helped our relationship quite a bit to see, you know, if I can help aid in some of these things that I need and grant that for her, then that can also, you know, potentiate uh, the libido and all sorts of other good things. But just our general sense of joy in life improves when we're taking care of each other. Yeah, and also the light side of the prostitute is understanding the healthy nature of transaction. You know, I'll, I'll share a little story. Um, I hope my girlfriend doesn't mind me sharing this, but <laughs> I'm going to do it. So my girlfriend's wheel, her highest potential, she has the prostitute. So. There was a time recently where someone was helping her with some personal stuff and was being very generous with their time and their energy. And I knew this person. So I said to her, be careful because just be mindful because I don't think this is a free lunch. I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, this person that's, you know, supporting you in this way is definitely going to ask for your services you know, right around the corner in the near future. And my girlfriend responds to me. She says, Greg, I have my prostitute in the highest potential. I know there's a transaction here, but to me, it's worth it. So she knew that what this person was offering her was worth what she knew this person was going to try and get out of her. And therefore, she knew there was a transaction there, but it was worth it to her. So that's the empowered prostitute. The empowered prostitute knows its sense of self-worth, knows what it has to give, knows that other people are going to try and get some of that, but to make sure that there's equal transactions so everyone's getting their needs met, right? That's actually the empowered prostitute. That's really the light expression of the prostitute. So negotiation is not always bad, you know, but make sure you're negotiating from a place of empowerment, not a place of self-compromise. And what, I, what I'm hearing you state too is, is the, the full understanding of reciprocity yes. you know, and how that pertains to all parties. And that's a very, very important thing, especially in whatever new world we're creating. It's the understanding of, of, of that law, the law of reciprocity that I think exactly. is such a critical piece. So now we round out the wheel in the 12th house. You save the best for last. Twelfth house is your unconscious. You got the saboteur. So the saboteur is a very interesting archetype. 
the, the saboteur obviously is one of the four survivals, so we all have the saboteur. We all have patterns of self-sabotage. It might just show up in different ways. But when I look at the saboteur, I look at self-sabotage from a few different perspectives, some of which are from Caroline Miss, but others just my own exploration. And I've kind of narrowed it down to three key areas with the saboteur. Number one, the saboteur is rooted in your greatest fear. So asking the question, whenever you're self-sabotaging, what is my greatest fear in this situation? Is it my fear of abandonment, rejection, maybe my fear of success because of all the responsibility that comes along with it? But what is my greatest fear in this situation? That's number one. Number two, what is the secondary gain I get from sabotaging? Which means what part of me is benefiting by sabotaging in this situation? For example, a lot of people have secondary gain in not healing. A lot of people have secondary gain in their pain or disease whether it's they get more empathy and compassion from people when they're sick, or they get medical leave from the job they don't enjoy when they're hurt, right? So what is the secondary gain? What part of you is benefiting from not healing or not succeeding? Number three is what is the truth that you're unwilling to face? A lot of times we self-sabotage as a way of turning away from a truth that we don't want to look at. Maybe it's that our marriage isn't working anymore, or we need a change of career, or our environmental needs are not suitable, and we need to move to another city or another country or whatnot. Or maybe we need to find a new social circle because you know our, our needs are not getting met with the people we're hanging around with, and we actually continue to self-sabotage to stay connected to the people that you know, are known and familiar, but are not really supporting our highest potential. So the saboteur protects us from the truth that is very inconvenient to look at, right? So the saboteur is all our relationship with truth. Now, if we look at the saboteur in your 12th house, it's in your unconscious. So there's patterns that we might not be consciously aware of. But if we look at your wheel as a whole, for example, the saboteur is across from the student, right? What did we say the shadow side of the student is? The shadow side of the student was learning but not applying. Learning but not applying is a form of self-sabotage, right? We accumulate knowledge, but we don't put it into practice. You know, a lot of people have read a million diet books, but they've never actually changed their diet. Right? So learning and applying is the power move for the saboteur here because the saboteur likes to learn and accumulate but not apply and integrate. Also, you have the hero in the first house. Remember, that leads from the front. The saboteur in the 12th house, that leads from behind. So you mentioned this pattern of you know, doing a plant medicine ceremony and ayahuasca telling you you need to meditate every day or you need to do yoga every day, you know, 20 minutes a day, whatever it is. The hero innately has this sense of grandiosity. It likes the heroic dose, but it might not be that attracted to the day-to-day monotonous practices and rituals. You know, like the 20-minute day, the, the, the meditation every day that no one actually sees what you're doing. It's not something that we're going to brag about, not something that's going to be on the you know, front page of Sports Illustrated. We might self-sabotage because our 
Kira was very addicted to the grandiosity. And it's not really interested in the day-to-day monotonous stuff. So ayahuasca might tell us, you know, you need to meditate 20 minutes a day. And the hero and the saboteur inside of you are like, yeah, fuck that, you know? So you see this interesting dynamic between the saboteur and the hero, but, and the saboteur and the student. But as a general rule of thumb, the saboteur, we want to look at what's the fear, what's the secondary gain, and what's the truth I'm avoiding. You know, those are the three big um, factors that usually lead to patterns of self-sabotage. And just on your wheel, it's in more intimate relationship with the student and the hero. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's... uh... I love it, brother. This is so good. Why don't we break down real quick how somebody would, or as long as it takes, how somebody would go about doing this for themselves and then how to approach this throughout the year? Yeah. So if you wanted to cast your wheel on your own, you can definitely do that. You can order Caroline Mrs. Archetype deck, the the cards on Amazon. They're like 25 bucks. So you get the deck, you take out the survival archetypes. And you put the survival archetypes aside because those are going to be the definites on your, on your wheel. We all have those four. So the victim, the saboteur, the child, all, all six variations of the child and the prostitute. So you put those aside. And then you take the rest of the deck and you go through the deck and you determine what are the eight archetypes in this deck that really stand out to me and resonate with me the most. And it's, it might take a while to sift through all of it and kind of continue to filter and filter and filter. And once you arrive at the, the eight archetypes that most resonate with you, you put the eight and the four together, the victim, the saboteur, the prostitute, and then you choose one of the child archetypes that you most resonate with. So the eight and the four equals 12. Then you print out the archetype wheel, which you can actually just Google it and print out just you know, an image of it. And what you do is you take those 12 archetypes, you shuffle them up, you lay them out in front of you, and then you take just a piece of paper and you cut 12 raffle size tickets, almost like raffle size, like ticket pieces. So you have 12 little pieces, you write numbers one through 12 on them. You fold them up, you put them in a hat, you put them in a bowl or a cup, you shuffle them up. And then you do a meditation just to clear yourself, to center yourself. You want to say a prayer to call in some guidance. Ask for um, your soul, your higher self, your guides to really support you in directing each archetype into the house that it's meant to reside in. And I recommend using some sage or some palo santo just to clear yourself. And then what you do is you turn it over to your intuition. You don't cast it as a logical, rational process. What you do is you draw a number and you draw a card and you match it. The number represents the house. The card represents the archetype that goes in that house. You do that 12 times. You fill out the wheel and now you have your casted archetype wheel. It's important to leave your um, inner skeptic behind, your... um, your rational, logical left brain that's going to be like, I'm not leaving this all up to chance. But that's where if you do the meditation, the prayer, the clearing, and the intention, real, if you do that really well, 
and you truly just allow intuition and you could say destiny to guide it it i've i've done probably i've probably done almost 100 wheels by now and i've never done a wheel that was that did not blow me away as to how spot on these patterns are and then obviously once you cast it then it's time to interpret it that's where you know finding someone like myself or someone who's really educated in the archetypes in the wheel can really guide you in the interpretation. Caroline Miss's book, Sacred Contracts, is a great resource. But I do think it's, it's best to find someone that can really go through it with you and kind of like show you maybe the parts of yourself and the archetypes that maybe you're not able to yet see or perceive. But also the the beauty of this time of year is the 12 houses also relate to the 12 months. So the first house is January, the second house, February, and so on. So what I also recommend doing is taking one archetype each month, January being one, February being two, and really focusing on that archetype and how it's showing up in your life. There's you know, great resources with journaling questions. I think journaling is a great method of interacting and exploring these archetypes, especially in their specific houses. So not trying to really tackle the whole wheel all at once, but actually working through it systematically and working with one archetype and one house each month. And what you'll notice is actually in January, whatever archetype you have in the first house is really going to show itself. Whatever archetype in you, you have in the second house in February, it's really going to show itself. So you're really going to notice a lot of opportunities in that month to really work with the energy of that archetype. So that's how I recommend um, systematically going about it. And if anyone is interested in either um, having some guidance in casting their wheel Sometimes it's good to have some guidance in determining your archetypes because a lot of times people can get a little confused as to which ones to choose, or maybe they're choosing too many archetypes that carry the same energy. So for example, you know, someone might choose the mother, the queen, and the goddess. And it's like, you probably don't need all three of those. <laughs> yeah. You know, Qu quarter so, of your wheel. Yeah, quarter similar. of your wheel is all carrying the same energy. Um, so a lot of times it is good to have, you know, someone who's really done a lot of this work to guide you through it. So if anyone is interested in casting their wheel and would like some guidance or some coaching, they can always reach out to me, which I'll give my website and contact information. So that's really the process that it looks like in terms of you know, the first couple steps to get started. That's so phenomenal. We'll, we will link to everything in the show notes. Um, I hope you were just absolutely crowded uh, uh, and, and kept busy all next year from, from everyone listening to this podcast. Uh, I'll tell you right now, this is so illuminating. You know, it, it really is. The, the hour and a half we spent on before this podcast and even right now going back over it with you has been mm -hmm. such a, a, a beautiful thing. And I really am appreciative uh, for you for reaching out to me and wanting to go through this, knowing that I had done the wheel a while back and, and wanted to rehash that. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, how these, you can do different wheels, you know, like this is the core 
mm-hmm. wheel. And then you, with what you had seen in it, you said, let's really just not spin and, and take a look at this for everyone. Um, yeah. But you could do a real transformation. There's other things, you know, once you've got this mastered and understood, which I'm, I certainly don't yet, but um, there's an evolution to, the, to these processes. And I think that that's a beautiful thing that you can really help people with as well. Yeah. So this is called the Kronos wheel, which is really your natal wheel. The natal wheel is, you could say, a birth chart that you kind of like came into this lifetime with. So these are the first wheel that you do, the Kronos wheel. These are the archetypal contracts that you really came out of the gate with, that you really kind of initially are here to learn and master. The second wheel that you do is called the Kairos wheel. The Kairos wheel is also called the transformation wheel. And that is if you are looking for something specific to transform in your life, then you've already done your Kronos wheel. You've spent some time working with the Kronos wheel. You know, I'm, I'm about four years into my Kronos wheel and I still am very hesitant in casting more wheels because sometimes it feels like you could work a lifetime on just this one. But if there's something specific that you want to work with, you can set an intention of wanting to transform something in your life. And then you go into the deck and you choose the archetypes that you think are going to best support that transformational process. Now, the transformation wheel, the Kairos wheel, you're not going to choose any of the same archetypes that you have in your original wheel. So there are going to be 12 new archetypes. So you do that, you choose the 12, and you then cast the wheel in the same process that you did the Kronos wheel or the, the original wheel. So now you have the Kronos wheel, your natal wheel, the Kairos wheel of something you intentionally want to transform. So now you have 24 archetypes. And then finally, you have what's called the cosmic wheel. And the cosmic wheel is really your soul's highest potential at large. These are the archetypes of your destiny that you're here to really step into at the highest level. Now, what you do once you've done the Kronos and the Kairos, all the archetypes that are left in the deck, you shuffle them up, you lay them out face down, and you very simply, one through 12, let your soul and intuition guide you to choosing 12 of the remaining, 12 cards out of the remaining deck, you cast those into the wheel, but you actually don't choose any of those consciously. Those are all face down. The Kronos and the Kairos, you choose those consciously. The Cosmic, you leave it up to your soul. You leave it up to your higher self and intuitive guidance. And then you cast the wheel. So now you have Kronos, Kairos, and Cosmic. And it's almost like Kronos is the past, Kairos is the present, and Cosmic is the future wheel. So you have past, present, future, and what you end up with is 36 archetypes, and you have three archetypes in each house. So you have three archetypes in the first house, the second house, and all 12 houses. And what you actually do, which I've done this with a select few clients that were ready for it, is we casted all three wheels, and we then started to explore one house at a time the evolution of the archetype in the Kronos into the Kairos 
and into the cosmic, and how each of those three archetypes were an evolution for your soul in that one specific house. So you actually have three archetypes in each house, and there's a distinct evolutionary process in each of the 12 houses with those three stages. And that's really how you complete it all together. But you don't want to rush into that process because there's so much work to do and so much to explore and so much to unpack in just the Kronos wheel, just the natal wheel that we, for example, did today. You know, yeah, I've spent a year and a half chewing on this and I'm still gleaning quite a yeah. bit, obviously quite a bit more with your help, but um, it, it does take a while to unpack because the longer you sit with it, the more that it unfolds in your life. You can allow you know, the 3D to illuminate the things you don't fully get. And um, self-inquiry is a great way to, to understand self-reflection, right? It's in a very important way that we come to, to know ourselves and continue to unpack what it is that, that's in, in our operating system. Yeah. So it can be very helpful to give you more insight. For example, I have my healer in the first house and then I did my cosmic wheel and I have the teacher in the first house. So I know a lot of my evolution in my work, for example, is going from not just doing one-on-one healing work, but also actually starting to teach. So this year, after casting that wheel at the beginning of the year, I started having a lot more teaching opportunities, workshops, webinars, podcasts, um, online courses. So a lot of times when you do the wheels, it actually shares a little kind of like sneak peek into what's, what is to come. Um, even, you know, the second house I had the cosmic vampire and that was also, you know, the second house relates to finances. So I was like, huh. So I have to take a look at where in my life I'm allowing money to be sucked out of me, whether it's spending money on unnecessary shit you know, buying things that I don't need, or maybe not charging enough for my work. So I really had to take a look at like boundaries and the financial health and where I was, you know, getting sucked dry, so to speak, to use vampire language. Um, So it's very helpful to do a lot of this work because it gives you a little insight into the things that maybe you weren't, maybe you were feeling but you couldn't really put it into like conscious language or interpretation. And now you just kind of like see it as a blueprint right in front of you. I love it, brother. Well, where can people find you? So healing4d.com is kind of like my home base. So healing, that's the number four d.com. And if they go to my website, if they go to like the program section, which is healing4d.com forward slash programs, they can actually like purchase time directly with me to cast the wheel. Um, if they want to just reach out to me directly, they can um, go to the contact page on my website. So healing4d.com is really the best place to find me. Um, on social media, it's 4D, uh, 4D underscore healing on Instagram. Instagram's really kind of like the main social media platform. I just started a YouTube channel, which is just my name, Greg Schmaus. So those are the three best places to find me. So healing4d.com website, 4D Healing is Instagram, and then my YouTube channel is just my name. And then one other thing that I have kind of coming around the corner is after the new year, my girlfriend and I are actually collaborating. She's a holistic and integrative um, physician. She's an incredible, she's a real medicine woman. 
um, we're starting an online community platform called Synergy Medicine. So maybe we'll link that in the show notes. It'll be synergymedicine.us, which is going to be our like member membership based platform where we're going to have tons of like weekly content, group coaching calls, you know, monthly workshops and healing sessions and all kinds of cool stuff. So we can link that in the show notes as well. But healing4d.com is really my home base for everything for people to get access to me. Beautiful. Well, round three has certainly been the best, the most informative. We, we're hitting the two hour mark. I appreciate you. And thank you so much, Greg, for coming back on the show Thanks and sharing all this man. wisdom with us. We'll do it again, brother. Thank you. <laughs>